Blog Talk Radio. From Brooklyn, New York, the duck butter capital of the world, it's Blazin' Rye Radio. Tonight on the show, Pieces of Me author Josie Marie, plus the Meaning of Truth author Nicole Sachs, featuring the Blazin' Rye panel. And my little chickadees, don't forget to tune in this Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern for a brand new show, Blazin' Rye Backstage. Same bat channel, different bat show. Whoa! And now, a man who lives in constant fear of testicular torso and it's Ryan Holmes! Monday, May 6, 2013. I have a great show for you tonight, but first, it's time to do the Blaze and Ride panel. Joining me on the panel tonight, he worked for 16 years as co-producer of WKRP in Cincinnati, John Weeks. John, how are you? <laughs> Good. How are you, man? It's a pleasure and honor. Hey, mate. <laughs> hey, mate. Now, the, the pleasure and honor is all mine, are all mine, sir. Uh, hey, Weeks. What would you say if I say I'm going to print out a gun and shoot you in the head? I would say terrible news. <laughs> I, think I, I, would, I, would, I think I would rather be shot by a real gun than a fake mm-hmm. plastic gun. I, I, I don't know. That's just my preference, you know? So let's just clue the folks in. On, that's what they say on these shows, right? Like, let's explain to the folks uh, what happened. This guy printed out an actual weapon from a 3D printer. Uh, John Weeks, do you think that is a, a good use of this new technology? I think it shows you how bad technology can be used in the in the wrong hands and uh, just how legislation has to cover all kinds of weapons and all kinds of uh, gun legislation in terms of uh, anything that can hurt people. And this, this has proven that you can kill people with this weapon. Uh, this should not have been created, and, and now that it's been created, it needs to be legislated again properly because it's uh, something they can get by certain metal detectors, I think they said, and uh, it's, it's it's a security issue, that's for sure. What do you think, what would you say to the people who support this uh, this weapon called the Liberator, I believe, uh, uh, and their, you know, notions of, of freedom and that they should have the right to be able to print out a weapon of their liking? I think that, you know, people, yes, it's a tough question, would you ask, if you ask about balancing freedoms of uh, ownership of guns, you know, which which is said in the Constitution, depends on how you uh, interpret that, and then um, uh, safety society. So I think you got to balance those two. I would say that, yes, you can own a gun, and you can own certain weapons, and uh, but I would definitely legislate against uh, ownership in terms of background checks, proper background checks, and listing such a weapon as a gun because that's exactly what it is. So it would fall under a category where background checks and psychological tests and, and everything whatnot that, that is incurred in, in procuring the gun should be done. And uh, as, as I think the legislation that was the landmark legislation passed in Connecticut uh, concerning about uh, ammunition rounds and limiting the size of such rounds should be probably nationalized. Unfortunately, it, it lost in, in Congress, but 
I think, um, you know, this gun, just like any other gun, should be, you know, properly secured against in, in society. And if people want to own it, they can, but uh, it's all the rules. But here's the thing. I didn't really realize this until tonight, but uh, there is no law against owning a weapon of your creation. So how do you how do you work your way around that? That's a really that's a really good question, and that's a, a brand new area of the law. And I think that's what some of the legislators in New York were talking about. And because uh, this is so new that they ha- they don't they didn't even realize that this was able to be created yet. Uh, this gun, mm-hmm. uh, just out of the plastic or materials that was were made. So they need to do some double time in terms of research and in terms of uh, introducing some legislation to, to guard against it. In creating your own weapon, it's still a weapon to me. You know, in in general, in the in, in the, the, the foundation of things, when you uh, label a weapon, it's something that can hurt people and it can cause mass casualties. And this is what and this weapon can do that, this liberator. So um, mm-hmm. I think it was... I think even the uh, owner, the creator of this company who created this weapon said that he knows that it can cause harm, but he just made it because he believes the freedoms of creating such and introducing society, liberty, is greater than the harm that it can cause. Well, I don't, don't, don't agree. I think it's a balancing act, and I think legislators have to face this head on, head on because this is a scary thing that technology can be used against, and it's just a matter of time until uh, we, we suffer a, a, a tragedy by the hand of this weapon. Mm-hmm. And none of us would want to have to to have to get to that point, um, right? You know, exactly. it took yep. it, it took something very drastic and tragic happening in Connecticut for for the new laws to be passed that you just mentioned. That's right, and unfortunately, we have a very reactive society. We don't have a society that does uh, things ahead of time, and that you know goes across all skills, health, and everything. Yeah. Well, let's move on um, to the one of the, uh, the the deceased Boston bombing suspect, uh, Amberlynn Sanayo. Um The uh, director of the funeral home has nowhere to dispose of the body. Uh, no cemetery wants to take this guy, uh, understandably so. Uh, how how do you what's what's the solution to this going to be? Do you think, John? We oh, this is a tough one too. I think um, I did a little reading on this. It's even the city of Boston basically said that uh, it would not be wise for him to be, uh, you know, buried in the, within their city limits. I think that's probably right because it caused a lot of anger, and uh, this is such a controversial issue there in the area. Um, uh, the, the guy has very few options. I think he's got to turn to the United States government. That, that's what I read. In certain situations, they've done that. Um, in pretty much enemies against the state, and in terms of their burial, uh, he's going to have to. Do that. I also saw that he said the only uh, Muslim burial ground that may accept him is located in the state of Connecticut, and uh, that's something that hits home a little bit. I think it's tough to say. It's 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 an issue that he's going to have to confront, and he's going to have to either go through the United States government or go through some back channels, like going to, through the Muslim cemetery. I think that's the only way he's going to get uh, this guy buried properly. Um, unfortunately, it's a an issue they're going to have to deal with, and uh, I think it's. Not entirely a bad thing, quite frankly, because it goes along with the shaming of uh, uh, the family, and the shaming is, is an element of uh, of crime that should always yeah. be, uh, you know, held. Uh, people have got to be held accountable. You know, this guy was a bad guy, mm-hmm. and, you know, too bad. It sucks, you know? 
yeah, I don't, I don't know what the solution to that will be. Um, really sucks for that funeral director, too. I mean, he didn't ask for this right, major that's right. issue. And, uh, that's right, and he's going to get a lot of flack for it, unfortunately. He's just doing his job. By the way, funeral homes, aren't they like the most depressing places ever? They are, but they're like the most beautiful places ever on the outside. I, you know, they, they look amazing. I almost want to go in there, but not really. But <laughs> <laughs> They look so nice. Uh, but, yeah, they got to be pretty depressing inside. I, I just can't imagine working there, like how awful that must be. I mean, I guess people must like it. I have to go to school for it and stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know how. If I worked there, the, the one thing that crosses my mind is would I be able to eat in the, the the funeral home? You know, could I order takeout and eat it in the funeral home? I don't know. I think that would be really awkward. It's really kind of nasty, but <laughs> it's just something that really crossed my mind. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this might be like a required lunch break, but they might, they probably really enforce it in this case. you got to get out of there. That's, that's right. you just got to get out of there. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That is gross. Very gross. <laughs> Speaking gross, of gross, bro. let's talk a little bit about Martha Stewart. Are you ready? <laughs> yes, I'm ready. I'm, I'm just kidding. I don't think she's gross. Um, so Martha Stewart was on the Today Show last week, and she starts talking about how she was going on Match.com, and Matt Lauer took uh, a great interest in this, and then they decided to like, you know, build up her profile and do all this stuff. Uh, today, she went on the Today Show and said... That a lot of, uh, well, Matt Lauer brought it up that a lot of younger men are reaching out to uh, Miss Stewart, the 72 year old uh, home living diva. And um, that she said, when he brought that up to her, she said, I wonder why. You know, do they want money? What do you think? We, are a lot of young guys hollering at Martha Stewart for, for her to be a sugar mama? I think so. I think uh, I read the bread about this. I don't know if she's really serious or this is just a kind of a publicity stuff, but yeah, if I was, you know, you know, as young as, young as I am or, or you are, I think it's just, uh, I think, yeah, people are just going after the, you know, somewhat attractive older woman who's got a lot of money. She's well-established and uh, she's very notorious. So I think people are just drawing attention to themselves. Some of the young guys just legitimately like older ladies. I think it's a, a tad bit old, but, uh, you know, she's, she's got a lot of money. <laughs> You're saying 72 is a tad bit old? <laughs> yes, a little older, you know. You know, I think 80 is totally off limits, but 72 may be okay for some guys. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, 82, that's my shit right there. 82, Larry. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Uh, uh, well, I don't know. I kind of wanted to holler at her myself. I wanted to join Match.com just to, so I could message Martha Stewart. You know, I agree with that. I actually want to just get her attention, just say, hey, what's up, and send her my picture and get rejected, you know? <laughs> <laughs> wait, send her, wait, send her your picture and have her do your taxes? <laughs> get rejected. That's <laughs> what she would uh, do. But <laughs> uh, sorry, I can't hear. I don't, one, of, one of my ears has been clogged for like a week now. I'm going to, I'm going to a doctor about this tomorrow. It's a real problem. Oh. That's terrible. You better not go to that Conrad Murray. That's who you can't go to that doctor. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant segue. I do want to mention first that, uh, uh, that I, I recognize today that my ear doctor, the only one that I trust in New York City, 
I noticed today that he's a plastic surgeon, and that I found that a little. Would you find that a little off? I found it a little bit off-putting. I think that's off-putting. You know, you want to go to a specialist. You don't want to go to somebody who makes a living off of, uh, you know, pretty much fixing up people's faces. That's pretty scary. You know, that's we got to stay away no, from the plastic wanted, surgeon's name. I want, but I only want to go to him though. So how do I reconcile well, that? That's a great. That, that's one of the life's great questions. It's it's. It's tough. I think you've got to go to the doctor that you trust in the end, you know, who uh, does the best job. If, he, if he's good at ear, nose, and throat doctor, I think that's, that's good enough. Do you think I should go to Conrad Murray? Con, um, I don't know. He's, he's probably uh, unavailable at the time, he's, he's, unless he's <laughs> taking jail visits, you know. <laughs> By the way, he uh, was sentenced to four years in prison. Uh, from the last trial, we're on a new one now. But I, I, I found that a little low. No, that was low, and uh, I think he only serves practically two of those years in jail, in actual jail time. That's beyond low. I think in terms of the neglect uh, that was proven in the case, and uh, it's just, um, you know, it depends on what your version of justice is. I don't think it's justice, but he should have mm-hmm. probably gotten more like ten years, if you ask me. Where did he spend the other two years in the like lost on the Ferris wheel at Neverland? I think so. Yeah, <laughs> which, which might might be something he enjoyed actually. Not much, not much of a punishment. <laughs> um, so the new trial is the one against that's brought by the Jackson family against AEG, the company that was producing um, mm-hmm. Michael's uh, what was supposed to be Michael's farewell concerts in London. Uh, or was it, were they farewell, or were they just comeback concerts? It was a comeback, I think. It was like like 50 shows straight, right? Yeah, uh, at the O2 Arena. Uh, I read a little bit about this. It sounds like another, it, it, you know, even after his death, these these trials, as long as I can remember, there's been Michael Jackson trials going on. Um, what do you yeah. think about this one? What's going on? Whew, this trial is a little more complicated. I think it's, you know, whereas you saw the doctor, he was almost directly involved in Michael Jackson's death. Uh, this is more of a negligent handling of Michael Jackson's career and his life. And uh, they're suing basically the entertainment industry that was in charge of putting on these shows in London uh, for basically, I would say indirectly, murdering Michael Jackson because they hired the doctor, Dr. Conrad Murray, and they instructed the doctor in terms of Michael Jackson's care. And they're saying that, that those such instructions were negligent. And in the hiring of Dr. Murray, they could have went with any other doctor, but they went with Dr. Murray, who had an outrageous um, demand for his salary. And basically $5 million, was, right? Yeah, outrageous. It was like, you know, 150000 a day or something like that. I think the next guy who offered his services was 40000 a day. And they say that the next guy who offered his services was requesting that Michael Jackson not be on any, you know, illicit drugs. And so I mm-hmm. think the uh, Jacksons have a legitimate claim. I think people are, are shouting and yelling and saying, you know, the Jacksons are very greedy. But I think they have a claim in terms of the treatment of Michael Jackson leading up to the concert. I think he, I think, but, you know, the blame is lies everywhere. It lies with his family and it lies with this, uh, this company and lies with the doctor and Michael Jackson himself to a degree. So, um, yeah. The millions upon millions that they're requesting, I don't think they deserve, but I think they deserve some closure, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good note to end it on. We're, we're going to have to bring some closure to this panel tonight. Uh, but this is not all for John Weeks this week as we premiere the new 
uh, the new internet radio series guaranteed to win some Peabody Awards and uh, you'll get back to your glory days at WKRP uh, and John Week will be back with me on Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time for Blazing Ride Backstage. Uh, John Weeks, I look forward to talking in a couple of days. Always a pleasure, sir. Always a pleasure. I look forward to the show. It's going to be the second best show right after yours right now. <laughs> All right. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. No problem, man. Take care. Go visit that George W. Bush uh, library in Dairy Queen out there in Dallas. <laughs> Definitely, man. Get some ice cream and read some books, and uh, it'll be good. Yep. <laughs> All right, man. Paper towels. Have a good night. Paper towels. Good night. Bye. All right. My first guest book, Pieces of Me, is now available for nine ninety nine on Amazon.com. Please welcome to the program Josie Marie. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. How are you tonight? I'm fantastic. I just landed in New York today, and I'm just having the greatest time so far. How are you? I'm well. Did you go into Kennedy or LaGuardia? I got into LaGuardia, and I'm going to fly out from LaGuardia as well. Oh, okay. Uh, So you have such a fascinating story, Um, and I've been reading your book, uh, Pieces of Me, when when people, Josie, think about Rwanda, they typically think about uh, the genocide and the people, well, and they think yeah. that people live there in extreme poverty. But yes. growing up, your your family was pretty well off, no? Yeah, we totally were. Um, like you said, every time somebody mentions the country Rwanda, the first thing we think about is the atrocities that happened in 1994. But um, before that, before 1994, I remember, you know, living in Rwanda with my family, very, very well off. And so sometimes we tend to look at just the negative part, and I try to kind of keep the good memories alive about Rwanda. And remember that it it, it is still and was a beautiful country that just went through some tough times. Mm-hmm. And you talk about, in your book, the I think you eloquently put it, the sunshine before the, the bloodshed. So exactly. tell me a little bit about that time in your life and, and uh, growing up prior to this um, tragic uh, event. There was uh, Your family owned several properties there, right? Oh, yes. My father was a very successful businessman, and my mother was actually a um, – she worked at a university, a women's university. So we're pretty well off, and as my father being a businessman, we had plenty of homes. We had about five houses that he had built himself in different parts of Rwanda, and life was good. I remember uh, visiting my grandmother, uh, my mother's mother, in the rural areas, not in the city, but in the rural areas, and watching them, you know, just in the farm or just the memories like that that I, I do like to keep alive. And also I remember going to school, and I remember, you know, we had at one of our compounds, we had um, cows and cattle and chickens and all of that. And those mm-hmm. were good memories. Those were really good memories. And and as I'm saying this right now, it's a flash comes into my head of the night that everything stopped. Everything was just like halted, came to a halt because of a phone mm-hmm. call that we got in the middle of the night that, you know, we had to go because it's it was getting bad, yeah. And that night you were 
you were not, everyone else was sleeping, but y- your your mother was uh, awakened by this phone call, and, and you were awake because you were awaiting the delivery of, of oh, your yeah. first television. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had we were actually living in a different home at that time, and there was a television we had just gotten, and somebody was going to come and install everything so we can actually watch television. And I was so excited. I was so excited that I couldn't sleep that night. I just To this day, I remember how excited I was. And so mm-hmm. as I was sleeping in the same bedroom as my mother, um, I was just, I couldn't really sleep because of the excitement. And it was that night that we had the phone call in the middle of the night, and I saw my mother get up out of out of bed, walk towards the the hallway, the lit hallway into the living room, and pick up the phone. And in that is- instant, everything just changed. And yeah, we never got to get that television to get installed, you know. And it's funny because it's funny because um these days I don't watch television as much. I don't. That's not my thing. You know what I mean? And I wonder if that's if I'm kind of traumatized <laughs> from what happened before. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. That would be perfectly understandable. Uh, and, and that night, that's when the, the chaos began to erupt in your life. And, and I guess you were you were put into a car and, and not your, your whole family couldn't fit into it. So I guess were your brothers no. walking alongside the car or something? You're right. Mm-hmm. Some of us couldn't fit in the car. So my mother and the the small baby, my younger sister, they were in the front seat. We had the driver, and the driver's son was in the back seat with me and my and another brother of mine. And I had two older brothers and an older sister that had to, you know, grab whatever they could and walk along with everybody else that was walking. There weren't a lot of cars on the road. There were more people walking than the cars. So they could walk right alongside the cars and, you know, it just came to a point where a bomb went off and, you know, we lost sight of them. We didn't know where they were. They didn't know where we were. And it was just, what do you do? Do you stop and turn around and, and go into the areas that you hear gunshots and people screaming from being cut with machetes? Or do you keep going, hoping, just hoping that your siblings, and in this case, my mother, her children, hoping that they are alive. Were you old enough to understand what was going on at the time? You know what? No, I I really was not old enough to understand. All I knew was that something was going on that was not right, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember being in the backseat of the car, and my mother was was looking back and saying, stay down, stay down, don't look up, maybe to try to hide what's going on outside from us, you know, but... In the back seat, I could hear gunshots. I could hear people screaming. But for me, in a way, I was young. I was thinking maybe this is a game in the middle of the night. I didn't understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so when we hear the gunshots, like, pow, pow, that's what I was doing. And my 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 brother and the other kid that was in the back of the car with us, we were pretending like it was a game. We were just imitating the sound. But it wasn't mm-hmm. until much later when I when I learned more about what had happened in my country that I realized, you know, that wasn't a game. It wasn't a game at all. And also when we le- when we got to um, the refugee camp where everybody was trying to, you know, seek refuge, <laughs> I remember sleeping on the floor and my mom covering me with this mat. And I'm like, why are you covering me with this thing? Why are we staying in a market? Can we go home? You know, I just wanted to go home. <laughs> I, I, I had enough of the games. I just wanted to go home, and obviously that never 
that that day never came. And how old were you? I was I was four. Yeah. Four. And when you got to the market, did you find safety there? Or did you have to keep moving? Well, no, we we stayed there for. It wasn't really a market. <laughs> for me, it looked like a market that I had went to with my parents, you know, before. Okay. It looked. It was just. It looked like a flea market. It was busy. You have a lot of people out there with bags, and it was just crazy. But it was really and truly a refugee camp. And we stayed at the refugee camp for about five months. And um, during that time, though, my father came back. He was away from business during this time. So he came back, and we got a place to stay um, in, in Zaire, which is now the Republic of Congo. We got a place to stay for a little while, and we got robbed there by soldiers who I we thought oh, we were going to die that night. And they took everything, so we had to go back into the blue tent, um, back into the refugee camp. So it was it was pretty tough. But at that time, it's funny, because at that time, as a kid, you don't look at things like, oh, this is tough. You just look at it like this is life. But growing mm-hmm. up and looking back, it's like, oh, that was a tough spot to be in. What do you think those soldiers that robbed you, what do you think stopped them from actually killing you? I think that maybe, you know, I thought about that, and I think they were their intentions I hope were not was not to kill us. You know, their mm-hmm. intentions was to come and take the money and the food that we had and move along. But we were lucky. I think I can't say anything else, but it is the grace of God, you know, that we are here and alive because there are other people who who got robbed by soldiers and were killed and women were raped and all these things happened, but we were spared. I, I can't even explain it. It must be something out there that was looking out for us. Right. Uh, you yeah. talk in your book about being able to see the goodness in people despite the, the horror and devastation that you grew up around. That reminds me of that Anne Frank quote about thinking deep down that at heart people are still good. Um, yes, yes, totally. Yeah, I, I try to you... keep that kind of outlook on life. I really do. Okay. How how do you think you're able to still see the good in people after living through a, a genocide? You know what? That's a, that's a good question because Growing up in Ohio, when we came to America, we lived in Ohio, and Ohio has a large group of Rwandan uh, people who moved here from from Rwanda and other countries after the the war. And honestly, all those people, although they've been through such tough times, when we go to events or they come over or we go to each other's homes, they are the most optimistic people I've ever met. Although they've been through those tough times, you know they have a strong mm-hmm. faith in God, and they just they just look on the bright side, and so that's what I grew up with. So I don't know. I can maybe it's just my personality. I try to focus on the positive things in people, and if something goes wrong, I try to look at the silver lining and say maybe this is maybe this or maybe that or maybe there's a reason. I don't know. Maybe that's just my personality. I just I, I think it's better and easier for me to focus on positive things than to just, you know, go into that dark dark space. I think that takes out more energy for me, and I, I don't like it. <laughs> sure. So what made you decide to come to New York? Well, I moved to New York because, well, um, I can't even say exactly what made me decide to move to New York. It was just when we first moved to America, we stopped in New York for like a night. And then we went to Ohio. 
But by the time I was 16, there was something calling me. You know, I wanted to do broadcast journalism, like like what you're doing now. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was like, you know what, that's the place that I want to do it in. And I, I really wanted to explore a different life than what I was seeing in Dayton, Ohio. You know, Dayton, Ohio, you really don't have as much diversity in that town as you would have in New York City, of course. So I just wanted sure. to see other things. And, and my heart was set on it, and nothing was going to stop me. So I did just that. And I read that you came here with twenty eight dollars and a dream. How? Oh yeah. What, what did you do? How how did you manage to uh, make ends meet? Oh well. Um, <laughs> well, when I when I moved to New York uh, first, I I was at Long Island University, so I stayed in the dorms. I had a little dorm job on campus, and I started doing music videos on the side, modeling, and just. Mm-hmm trying to see the world out there. And later on in my experiences in New York, when I needed to eat, um, I started, well, I was trying to find internships, and I did internship with Pastries, with Vanessa Angela Simmons, and I also worked with Jim Jones, a rapper here. And after a while, I wasn't making enough money to feed myself. I was constantly starving. And you know what? I really quite didn't mind the struggle that much. I feel like it just taught me, it just, I don't know, I felt like there was something in the struggle that I was supposed to learn. So that's why I stayed. And so I ended up going to dance at a go-go bar, and I took on another personality and became another person who people will will have to read the book to find out about. <laughs> and so that's how. <laughs> so that was another chapter of my life that I had to go through and say, whoa, what is this going, what is this here? And so mm-hmm. people you know, are going to have to mentioned- get the book. Out that information. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, what what exactly was the profession, or do you not want to say? Um, it was, I was a vocal dancer. Oh, at a club. okay. Yeah, yeah, but it was. I think it was like I want people to uh, to get into the head of that individual at that moment. You know what I mean? Sure. It's not just to say, oh, it was a vocal dancer at a club. Like, really understand every movement she was making. And I'm saying she because it was a totally other personality. That was not Josie mm-hmm. Marie. <laughs> so I just want people to read the book and understand what personality that person had and what they were doing and how they were doing it and their intentions and all of that. Because I think sometimes we're so quick to judge someone because of their profession, because of how they look, because of what they do. But sometimes if you really dig down and see what that person's about and what they, why they do what they do, I think you get a, you know, it's a better feel of a person, I feel like. Absolutely. You just mentioned yeah. Jim Jones. Uh, we just recently had Jojo Capone on the show, and he was telling this story about how Jim Jones uh, had some guy beat up like this 18-year-old security guard for no reason. Uh, oh, my God. And did, did you ever notice anything a little strange or off about him when you about were About Jim Jones? Yeah. You know what? Jim Jones, um, to me, he always came off as a very calculated person. He's not, mm-hmm. like, to me, you know, I know a side of one side of him, and there are many sides to people, so I can't speak on every side. But as far as I'm concerned, he always came off to me as a very calculated person. Whatever decision he made was for a reason. And it was pretty pretty laid back. But at the end of the day, you know, if you're going to mess with somebody, they're going to protect themselves. So I can't, you know, I don't know his personality that much, but that's all I can mm-hmm. say about it. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So, yeah. 
So uh, <laughs> you were a, a go-go dancer. You and then what got you into? Uh, you had a radio show in, in uh, your name, right? What got, what got you into that? Yeah. Yeah, the Josie Marie show. My my main thing, like I said, when I was moving to New York, I wanted to be to get into broadcast journalism, and that's mm-hmm. exactly what I was studying for at Long Island University. And I've even at LIU, I was involved with LIU radio and LIU TV. So that was always something that I loved to do and wanted to do. And one day, my father had texted me, and he said, "What are you doing there in New York? Meaning, get the hell back, come back to Ohio. What are you doing with yourself?" And in that instance, I texted back. I said, I'm going to get my own radio show. Mind you, I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't have a clue where I was going to start, you know. But mm-hmm. I managed to pull it off, and I actually started the radio. If it wasn't for go-go dancing, I wouldn't have been able to have my radio show because the money from go-go dancing actually helped a lot with, you know, the things that I've learned about radio and broadcasting and, and having that on on-hand experience. Sure. And then you were homeless for a while in the in the Bronx? Was I that, was. Was that before this or was that after you were doing the show? That was, be- that was before the radio show. That was before I started getting myself together. I had just oh, got okay. out of um, Long, Island, Long Island University. I was no longer staying at the dorms. And I'd, I had I had two options. I could stay in New York and struggle and, and find a way, or I could run back to Ohio and say, okay, I'm back. I couldn't do it. And quitting wasn't an option for me. So whatever I had to do, I had to do. I, I stayed at people's homes, couches, and stair, stairs, and ended up in the Bronx, homeless, and staying in empty buildings, and eating a tuna sandwich a day, and living on $2 a day. It was just, you know, it was a part of the struggle, though. And I, I, and I don't look at it like it's a bad thing. I do believe that everything happens for a reason. And in that moment, I wasn't looking at myself like, woe is me. I was looking at it like an outsider looking in, if you will. I was looking at it like, okay, mm-hmm. this is supposed to teach me something. I'm supposed to be here for a reason. And I just kept that mentality all throughout. And I still keep that mentality right now. I follow my inner voice to the T, you know, and I think, I don't know, that's, it, it works for me. So. Sure. And, and you talk in your book about finding uh, success in music videos and in radio, but something was up. You say in your book, I need a change in my life before something, I needed a change in my life before something went terribly wrong. What did you think was yeah. about to happen? I don't know. All I know was I was not in a good space emotionally, mentally. I Well, physically I was hot because, well, I was a go-go dancer. <laughs> <laughs> You're a go-go dancer. Yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> No, but in other areas, I wasn't really feeling like I was at peace with myself. I felt like there was something missing. I felt like I, I had fallen into into this big, great cloud, and it wasn't going anywhere. I couldn't see forward. You know, I couldn't see what was next. I couldn't see what I was reaching for. And that frustrated me. And I started, I realized this about myself. When I'm stressed out like that, I eat. And so I would eat and eat and eat and not even realize I was almost abusing myself. It was kind of like an abuse to myself, the way I was eating and sometimes not even remembering, just feeling guilty about it. I mean, that's, that was a problem. And I didn't want anything. I didn't want to go downhill from there. And so somehow something was like, you know what, you have to find yourself. You have to really do some personal self development and 
and, and find yourself and find what it is you're supposed to do because if you stay in this area, nothing good is going to come out of it. And so that's why I really decided to go back into my past and start writing what I remember and kind of start picking up pieces of me from, like, every chapter is like a piece I'm picking up to create a, a full person. Well, at 23, I, you know, I still have a lot of room to grow. But, um, yeah, at that mm-hmm. point I was like, i gotta, I got to do something, you know. I don't. I was abusing myself in that way with, with overeating and, and all of that. I was just, I wasn't the same person. My best friends were like, what's going on? I stopped talking to people. I was almost falling into depression, and I didn't want to go down that route. Yeah. I want you to talk a little bit about the song that you heard that said everybody would die, but not everybody would live. Yeah, everybody lives. Oh, everybody dies, but not everybody lives. That was actually by Drake. And when I heard mm-hmm. that one day, I was like, oh, my God, what am I doing with myself? I mean, what am I, am I living or am I just going through the motions? And that was always my thing. I like to know what I'm doing. Is it on purpose? Am I being purposeful with what I'm doing? Not just to do things because other people want me to do it or because society says that's what you should do. I want to do something because it's, it's heartfelt. It's from my heart, and, and I feel like it's going to make a difference somehow. And what I was doing at that time, I mean, I I had already a show, but I really wasn't being as inspired or inspiring in what I was doing as I felt like I could be. And I was dancing. I didn't feel like that was me, really. I was just, you know, I was partying. I had a great New York nightlife, you know. It was great, mm-hmm. but still something was missing. And I felt like, you know, I'm not really living. I'm just going through the motions. And I don't want to die and realize that I didn't really live my life. And that something had to something had to change. Was it the the fact that you, I mean, were you kind of burying the, the past deep down so that you weren't thinking about it? So you it were uh, distanced from yourself when you were younger. Is that why you felt this disconnect when you were you know, uh, heard this song? That's that's very that's very interesting. But that's a good question. I feel like. One thing that I always thought was, you know, being from where I'm from in Rwanda, thousands of mm-hmm. people died, okay? Thousands yeah. of, people, of people died during the genocide. Why is it that I was there? Why is it that I am here? And without question, brings up so many emotions and brings up so many other questions. And so that makes me feel like, you know, there must be a reason. So I had to reach back and say, because I survived, survived that, I must be meant for something more. I have to kind of live my life in a way that makes up for those people who don't have a chance to live a life. You know what I mean? So maybe that kind of caused a disconnect because the lifestyle I was leading wasn't really benefiting me or what, and and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't making up for all those people that died. I just felt really empty and I felt like I wasn't doing anything to better myself or society at all. And I think maybe that disconnect was there. See, you're helping me you, out a lot. <laughs> sure. What, what did you feel that you needed to, to do to better yourself and to better those around you? Well, of course, I needed to work on myself. I needed to get myself out of the rut I was stuck in. And the first thing that I started to do was get into more personal development and, and start learning more about myself, my personality. And I, I ran into books by um, by John C. Maxwell by Jack Canfield, and I watched a lot of training videos with Anthony Robbins, Tony Robbins, and a lot of self-empowerment videos that 
really spoke to me. And I was like, wow, this is what I've been missing. And it really spoke to me as though I was, like, I was just waiting for the moment to come so I can find it. You know what I mean? You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And did that moment come? That moment totally, definitely came. And that was when things Mm -hmm. started to turn around. And also meeting certain people, some people being placed in my life to help me get out of the situation that I was. And one of those people being Dave Diamond Cox, may he rest in peace, he taught me so much and about not just about business and being a successful person, but also being a humble person and knowing yourself and following your heart and following your dreams. And, and it's just certain people and certain things were placed in my life at the perfect time. But, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have found those people or found those answers if I wasn't asking the right questions. And the, the right question at that time was, who am I? You know, who am I? And that's, that, that's where I had to start. Yeah. Sure. And your book, Pieces of Me, what do you want the reader to get out of it? I want people to be inspired. I want people to know that their current situation doesn't define them. You can go through hell and back, but you are in control of what you what what you what comes out of you. You can come from the worst parts of the United States or or Rwanda or Cambodia, wherever. You can come from anywhere, but you can be the best person you can be. And I just want people to get a feel of inspiration. I want people to be inspired to be the best person to be the best person that they can be, which is what my website, JosieMarie.com, is about. I put tips and articles to help people be the best they can be in all aspects of life, especially personal development, only because I know that helped me so much. So I just want people to be inspired and to be the best they can be so that they can pay everything forward, just to know that everything happens for a reason and to kind of look at life in a more positive light. Although there may be atrocities that surround us, there's always a, there's always something that's, that's positive, you know, and we sometimes lose sight of that. And I want people to, you know, to grasp that. It sounds like you were around this uh, event that brought your community, the community that you loved, uh, so far down through the, the, the death and the destruction that it sounds like you are going to spend the rest of your life uh, lifting people up. Um, I think I have to. Mm-hmm. I think I think so. I think I have to. And I have to do it in the way that feels right for me, you know. So many people can have ideas as to how things should be done or how I should do things. Or, but I feel like I do want to help people. I, I really have it in my heart to help people, to inspire people, especially being that there are so many other people who could who could have had that chance but didn't because they were, they, they were killed during the genocide. And I feel like it's my purpose. It really is my purpose to spread a message, to help people lead happier lives and be the best that they can be. And I hate to mm-hmm. cut this interview short. I would love to talk to you all night, but I'm actually outside of another <laughs> radio station that I have to jump into. Uh, oh, no worries. We are wrapping up here anyway. Uh, this was absolutely delightful. Check out the book, Pieces of Me. Uh, it's available on ebook on Amazon. And uh, yeah. the website is JosieMarie.com. Uh, anything else yeah. you want to say before we go? Um, No, just thank you so, so much for having me on your show. It was such a pleasure. And everybody listening out there, be the best you can be and be happy because, you know, life is going to throw you curveballs here and there, but it's all about how you handle them. And, yeah, just have a great, great night. 
<laughs> All right, Josie, you too. Have a great night. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Josie Marie. Check her out, josiemarie.com. Um, also follow her on Twitter at Josie Marie. And the book, again, is Pieces of Me. Uh, my next guest is a psychotherapist and author whose new book is called The Meaning of Truth. Please welcome to the program, Nicole Sachs. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. That's serious applause. <laughs> Hi, Nicole. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you perfectly. Uh, your bio says that you began your psychotherapy career at age 12. Explain. Well, you know, I think certain things are in your blood. And um, when I was very young, it was always my position wherever I went to somehow listen to people. I loved it, and I loved connecting with people. And I learned from a very young age that I actually really, um, I was a very good listener, and I was able to give people advice that they could really use. And as I got older, I started to understand that, it would be possible to do this as a career, even though it would take a lot of work and a lot of time. But um, it was absolutely in my blood from a really young age. So what problems at 12 were these children experiencing that you had to help them with? Oh, well, um, if anybody can think back to their adolescence, boys, um, family, um, people whose parents didn't get along. And I was really familiar with all these things because I was an only child and my family moved a lot. So I went to about 10 different schools growing up, and I'm an only child, so I was never with a sibling. So I always had a really deep connection with my friends. I would, I would seek out people. I wanted to connect. And once I got good friends, they could really count on me. And so um, it was really just the kind of person where I'm sure you've had friends like this as a child. You could just really speak to them, and it really helped you to be connected to them because a lot of kids – don't feel comfortable speaking to their parents, obviously. And, um, you know, friends connect with one another. Yeah. Uh, since you had such a deep connection with your friends wherever you went, it must have been difficult to keep moving around like that. Oh, my goodness, yes. Now, it, I will tell you, like, as I look back upon my life, I'm 40 now, um, I will say that as much as I hated it as a kid, hated it as a kid and I actually complained all the time to my parents every time we had to move, um, I will say that it really created a resilience in me, um, that I can pretty much enter any situation and not be afraid, which um, mm -hmm. has helped a lot in my career and it's helped a lot in my life. It's helped a lot being a parent. Um, I have three biological children and two stepchildren, and I'm raising five kids. Um, and I will tell you that anything that I do, whether it's my, you know, my private practice, my psychotherapeutic practice, or my kids, or the book and promoting it, I'm just not scared. And I think that even though it was hard, it, it gave me a lot of character. Sure. Uh, you're, I'm sure that helps when you're being moved about like that as a kid. Your bio talks about your passionate desire to become a mother. Did you, did you always have that, and why do you think that is? You know, um, yes, I did. And I think that probably it had a lot to do with the fact that I envied these large families with all these siblings, even if they fought, I didn't care. I wanted to be part of something like that. Um, and also because I had a really close relationship with my own mother, still do. And so um, I just, from, like, you know how little little kids have, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
one of the jokes my mother and I have always had is when I was about 10 or 11 years old, she said, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to do nothing, just like you, because <laughs> my mom was a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> and, um, you know, she still gives me a hard time about that. Um, but basically, um, you know, it was just the kind of, you know, I love baby dolls. I loved babysitting. Um, I, you know, I wasn't the kind of kid who wanted to play with Barbies. I wanted, like, a real baby. I wanted to, you know, interact with a real human baby. Um, since I was extremely young, I was a mother's helper, um, and that's what, um, and I'm not going to jump ahead, but that's what was so powerful a little bit about what happened early on in my life that I put in the book about my physical condition because I was told early on I wouldn't be able to have a baby, which, of course, now is crazy, but at the time it was really damaging. Well, let's talk about that then. You had this life-changing diagnosis that at age 19 um, it was a degenerative uh, spinal condition. Is that what it was? Yeah, that's what it was. That's what it still is. Um, it's called spondylolisthesis. It's a big word. Um, spondylolisthesis. So funny. Every time I look at it, I feel like I need to like chop it into sections so people can even hear it. Um, right. And um, I, I was diagnosed at 19 because I was um, freshman year at college, and my back had gotten to the point where I was debilitated. I wasn't even. I had an acute incident, with what I like to call it, um, and I couldn't move. And I had to go home, and I had all these MRIs and X-rays and orthopedic surgeons' visits and stuff. And they basically, you know, they diagnosed me with a condition that I like to make sure people understand. I absolutely have. So what my lower spine is um, extremely curved. It's sort of like scoliosis, but it doesn't affect your whole spine. It's the bottom of the spine. And I have a couple stress fractures and a couple of my vertebrae. And one of my vertebrae is actually completely shattered and replaced with scar tissue. And um, according to every orthopedic surgeon I've ever seen, I should not be able to stand upright. Um, they told me you won't live till 40 without having spinal fusion surgery, which is a really, really intense surgery that involves a body cast for six weeks, or at least at that time it did. It's probably improved since I was 19. Um, mm -hmm. And it also involved, but I know this is still true, decreased mobility for life because they literally fuse with a metal rod, you know, several of your spinal of, the, of your um, vertebrae. And, um, but I was always told, you're young, you're young, you don't need it yet, but you just won't live, you know, you won't live your whole life without it, which was the joke of the night um, a year ago on May 18th, which is my 41st birthday coming up, when I turned 40 and I danced all night to Maroon 5 <laughs> um, at the concert in the first row. And, um, you know, the, the point is, my journey in life has shown me that there are more answers than one, and I think people oftentimes are given either a diagnosis or a destiny in some way, shape, or form that is supposed to be what's going to happen for them, and I feel very blessed that I found a way to see beyond that because that was not to be my destiny at all. Don't you think after overcoming all that, you deserved to rock out to a better band on your 40th? Hey, listen, it was like <laughs> I've got five kids, and they were playing in Atlantic City. And you know what? It was actually a really fun show. It, I wouldn't necessarily pick it. I also, to my credit, in the past year have also been third row at Coldplay and several other singer-songwriters. But you know what? It was, mm -hmm. it was what was playing on May 18th at the, at the Revel Casino in Atlantic City. And I live in coastal Delaware now. I, I moved from New York three years ago. Okay. Yeah, uh, I've I've seen Maroon Five a couple times accidentally, but I've I've seen them and they're 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 all right. 
Uh, I actually no. like their newer stuff better than their older stuff. Everyone else is the opposite. Do you like their older? But I like the newer stuff better. I actually have to tell you, I've never been such a massive Maroon 5 fan, but I will tell you that their newer stuff, as much as I like it, it's a little problematic because every time I listen to it in the car, the kids are like, oh, my God, you said the F word. And I'm like, oh, great. Um, so, you know, that, that <laughs> does tend to be a little bit difficult when it comes to um, enjoying my music. I, my, my children are fifth grade, fourth grade, second grade, second grade preschool. So you'll understand that music can be limited, mm-hmm. even though their favorite yes. song is Thrift Shop, which I can't even get involved in. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because – there are a couple of songs like that that have come out over the last few years. Like Adam Levine will be singing in his, his high falsetto very beautifully, but then all of a sudden he just drops the F word out of nowhere, and I just start cracking up because it doesn't make sense in the song. It's like when yeah. James Blunt came out with that Your Beautiful song, and yes, he said the F word in the second yeah. verse. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that if ever I am famous enough to be interviewed on the actor's studio, F word is my favorite word, but not for my children to be listening to music. Oh, is it really? Oh, well, I Why mean, do you think that is? Do you think it's it's because you can release a lot of uh, negative energy with it? I do. I think it's the most beautiful word. I love it. And I love any time anyone has the bravery to say it. But the truth is, like, my kids, I don't need them to be singing it, you know, with a Maroon 5 song. <laughs> <laughs> so your bio says, with the assistance of the natural defiance of youth, Sachs was able to live long enough to see a wider picture of her pain. What does that mean? Um, all right. Well, have you ever heard of Dr. John Sarno? Uh, now I have, but not, not until now. Okay. Well, basically, um, when doc- Dr. Sarno just retired last year at the age of 90, he was an attending physician at NYU um, um, practicing out of the Rusk Center for Rehabilitation. He was a doctor of re- rehabilitative medicine and actually, you know, even though he did practice mind-body medicine, a full MD for years and years and years. And he wrote this book, little book, that not a lot of people knew about a long time ago called Healing Back Pain. And um, what happened was after my rather horrifying diagnosis, one day my mother was watching the Rosie O'Donnell show, back when Rosie O'Donnell had a daily talk show, just, you know, Ellen, like Ellen and Oprah and whatever. And her producer... Um, her, her name was Jeanette Barber, was in a motorized wheelchair, and she was un, literally unable to walk. She had knee problems and maybe ankle problems as well and had been to every surgeon, every treatment, everything. And Rosie literally went on the air and said, please, if anybody knows any sort of alternative things to help my, my producer, she's a wonderful person. You know, I love her, but, you know, she's basically dying of, like, pain. And apparently droves of people wrote in and said, Dr. John Sarno, you know, who does mind-body medicine. And my mother called me in like a hysterical frenzy. I was probably about 25 years old. Um, and she, I was in grad school, maybe I was 27. And she said, what this doctor says is that, you know, you don't have to have surgery. You don't have to take medication. It's repressed rage. It's repressed, you know, feelings. You need to look up this book, Healing Back Pain. So I looked it up. And I have to admit, and I admit this in my book, I didn't actually read the whole thing. <laughs> I, I read the first couple of pages. I read the back cover, um, what I call the natural defiance of youth, because I never felt like doing anything I didn't want to do. But to be honest with you, I completely got it. And what I got was that we carry pain in our bodies, and we have a lot of things that we don't like to talk about because they're not polite and they're not 
um, socially acceptable, and they make us feel less than and embarrassed and stupid, and or we don't feel like we have a voice. So we shove them down. And what happens is the human body, just like any other, you know, thing in life, you know, it has its breaking point, and the pain has to go somewhere, and the emotional pain has to go somewhere. And I understood what he was saying. Now, although I think this sounds lunatic, even as I say it to you, even as I've lived it, and even as I've worked with clients for over 10 years in my private practice with it, when I say it out loud, it still sounds lunatic. So what I have to tell you is the crazy thing about it is absolutely effing works. Um, And I have basically seen people transform their lives. And the reason I'm telling you about the Rosie O'Donnell show is because what happened is Jeanette Barber went to Dr. Sarno, and she went through his program, and the next thing you knew, she was running the New York Marathon. And that's a true story. Wow. And I watch, that, I watch that happen in my practice every day, and I've seen it happen in my own life um, where I have carried three babies to term and exercised until the day before they were born. And I have no pain in my life at all, and I still have this condition. If I lay down for an MRI right now, I have this condition. But what Dr. Sarno explained to me and what I understood is that our bodies are just breakable. You know, we're, we're human beings. We run and we fall. And, you know, when I was little, I rode horses and sometimes I was thrown. And, you know, and we have bumps and bruises that exist inside our bodies, but they don't necessarily account for our pain. And essentially what I did with my book and with my practice is I took my experience of bringing myself through this process. I've never had surgery. I've never taken medication except for, you know, a couple of pain meds when I was very young. But, I mean, I've never been on ongoing medication. And mm-hmm. I am absolutely pain-free. And what I did was I applied this to my practice, and I have patients, hundreds of them, that are completely blank-free, whatever it is, you know, depression-free, anxiety-free, OCD-free, um, getting out of bad relationships, losing weight, not being stuck, based on the same concept of going for their truth, which is why I finally wrote the book. As a as a psychotherapist, there is often uh, a, a need amongst your community for people to go on, uh, or for for doctors to suggest or therapists to suggest that people go on medication that can wind, wind up being chronically. Do you try and stray away from that since you have this whole thing about not wanting to have been on medication chronically yourself? You know what? There's That's a very, very good question, Ryan, because I think there's a really um, deep disconnect between different forms of medication. So I'm actually really glad. No one's ever asked me that. That's a really good question. Um, I do not like to see people on chronic pain medication. The reason I don't Mm -hmm. is because if you have a problem that is this deep, it's not going to help you. And I know this not because I say so, because of hundreds and hundreds of people, both at NYU, in my private practice, through my work with Dr. Sarno, which is, you know, I can tell you a little bit more about that. But the point is, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're sitting around and doping yourself up on a lot of Percocet and Oxycontin, it, it will not help you in the long run. Yeah, it can take away pain for the moment. You know, I did have three babies. I know what it feels like to take a Percocet and have your pain be less. But I'm talking about if you have a chronic condition like this, you need to take deeper action than that. Now, in terms of antidepressants and, 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 I don't, and anti-anxiety meds, and when I say that, I don't mean benzos. I don't mean like um, uh, uh, Ativan and um, Xanax and stuff because those are, those are topical. Those are, you know, you take them like when you're getting on a plane if you're going to have a panic attack or, yeah. you know, if you have a severe anxiety attack. I'm talking about regular antidepressants. Those, 
I completely believe in. Now, I only do so because I've seen people help. I've seen people be able to chill enough to do the work they need to do in my practice to actually heal themselves because they can, you know, climb out of that hole of depression a little bit or come down from that, you know, crazy anxiety that they're feeling. Mm-hmm. So that's a different different kind of medication. If, can you understand what I'm saying, like the distinction? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and you just mentioned your uh, relationship with Dr. Sarna. How, you, you actually developed a personal relationship with him, worked with him. How did that come about? Well, after um, I completed the program and I was completely pain-free, um, my youngest child um, was just approaching a year. She's five, six, almost six now. And um, I decided I wanted to go back to work, like really go back to work. And so I established my private practice at the time in New York where I was living, and I approached Dr. Sarno and said, you know, I really want to be part of your, um, your you know, your, your team. And he um, basically took me on, and I was a Sarno therapist, completely trained, and he referred his patients into my practice because he had several Sarno therapists in the city, and I was in Westchester County at the time, which is a little north of New York City. And... Um, so basically, um, which you probably know because I just called you on a 917 number, um, but basically I, um, yeah, so, so I was seeing his patients and then he had something called the alumni panel that met once a month at NYU that I would come in for probably about once every other month. And it would be four of us, um, four people from all walks of life. There were usually medical doctors. It was all very extremely accomplished people, PhDs, medical doctors, um, me, you know, some other people um, that we would speak, each of us for about 10, 15 minutes about how we came through this journey and, you know, our stories. And then it was about an hour and a half Q&A where, you know, people would run with microphones so everyone could hear. And um, we would answer people's questions because it was open to his patients and their families. So I I spoke on that for about four or five years. And I take it it was a successful run? Oh, my goodness. It was probably one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my life because aside from seeing people individually, which is amazing, and I, I still I have a full book of appointments. I'm still a full-time psychotherapist. That was amazing because it was just being able to help so many people at once. And they would just line up after it was done and, and line up for all of us to thank us, to ask specific questions. Um, and it was really a, just a beautiful experience of shared humanity and people being able to really – um, ask questions of people who had been there, who had been in severe chronic pain. I mean, what, one of my um, co-panel speakers, her name is Stephanie, and actually she and I are going to be on a panel at the end of the month for a doctor who works out of um, Northwestern in Chicago, and he's having a panel for his patients because he's carrying on Dr. Sarno's work. We're going to do a virtual panel. Um, and she used to talk about, and I remember her story well, that she was literally bedridden. She had a bedpan. I mean, it was like insane. She mm-hmm. couldn't move. And she had some revelations and did the work with Dr. Sarno. And now she travels the world. She just got back from Hong Kong. She um, does a, She's a curator. She's a curator for certain art, art shows and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's just amazing to see the physical problems people can overcome, but it's, it's what I've learned and what I've written about in my book is way more than just physical problems. It's basically gets to the root of a lot of human drama um, to find your deepest truth and to not be frightened of it because it's not always pretty to look at. In this book, um, your your bio says that your clients and countless others 
uh, convince you to write a book. Yeah, I, I've had a lot of therapists myself, but I've never said, hey, you should write a book. That must be quite a, a nice compliment. Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, it's 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 the, it's the most amazing thing to do the work I do because, first of all, it, it drains me. I mean, I am always honest with people. I mean, it sucks my soul because I'm completely and utterly in it, but at the same time, there's nothing more rewarding. My, my clients give it right back to me. Um, mm-hmm. And it was it wasn't just like it was every one of them. It was it was two years of people being like you need to spread this knowledge, um, and you know it's hard for me because I'm really really bad at self promotion. It makes me very uncomfortable to be honest with you. But what I did was I felt like enough people said it that I was just I just took a chance. You know I, I wrote the book in five months. Um, you know on Tuesday nights because I I take care of my kids. I love to be around them and I don't want to get away from them for too long. But on Tuesday nights, I work late, and um, it's my one night I take evening hours. And after that, I would go and sit and you know, at, like, a restaurant wine bar, and I would write. And I wrote the book in five months. I mean, I would say, you know, 38 years in five months because, I mean, it took all my life experiences, to, you know, to do it. But um, I, I, I really, my, my genuine, genuine hope is that anybody who is feeling stuck can be helped by this because it's, it, to me it's the deepest meaning of life. Um, is, is to be unafraid of your own truth. When people ask what your book is about and you answer you, what do you mean by that? Um, I think it started because so many people were asking me, and it's such a complicated answer. I just said it's about you, and everybody always laughed. But then I realized it's absolutely true because one of my deepest beliefs is that we're all the same. You know, um, I, I, I have people in my practice, you know, living in coastal Delaware, it's a very interesting place to live. I live right on the beach, and there are people here that are very, very wealthy from New York or D.C. or P.A., and they have their third home here, you know, which is like a mansion on the water. And then there are people that live in a mobile home park, and that's all they have. And, um, you know, all different races and religions, and it runs the gamut. And what I found in my practice is when we sit there and we talk, we're all the same. We're exactly the same. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how much education you have. I don't care if you're black, white, gay, straight, married, single. When you're hurting, when you're deeply hurting, you're exactly the same as every person that sits in my practice. And when I understood that, I realized my book is about you. Because I don't need to know who you are to understand that in your moment of vulnerability, you will relate to this. And that's kind of what started that whole thing. So what exactly do you do you talk about in the book then? Um, is it all about uh, people kind of just coming to terms with, with who they are or what what is the major crux of what you speak about? Um, that's a good question too because I feel like I get it a lot, which means I probably am not explaining it well enough in my in any, anywhere. Basically, <laughs> um, I, I hear you. Um, basically what it is is this. I'm a therapist, okay? So if you just completely dumb that down, I'm a shrink, and people come to me to get help because they are, you know, stuck in some part of their lives, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I do. Now, I also have the benefit of having lived through this personal experience, which was extremely um, transformative, which is, you know, I was completely disabled, and then I worked through it. And basically what I describe in the book is I do it from soup to nuts. I talk about what... I think afflicts people. I help people define what it is that they've been defining all their lives that has served not to help them, like 
I know who I am, or that's just my life, or there's nothing I can change. And people tell themselves these stories. I call it playing our tapes. And we play our tapes, and we can play them for the rest of our lives. We can just decide that that's who we are. I'm just not a person who likes to be touched. I'm just not a person who is social. I'm just not, you know, my husband and I, you know, I just don't like to talk to him, but, you know, I don't, I'm not social. Like, you know, and I hear this from people, but if they find me and they really want to be helped, I look a little deeper than that. And what I do in my book is I explain to people how they can let go of their tapes for a moment just long enough to invite within them a possibility that life can be better and fuller and richer and um, full of possibilities for them. And then I do tell my own story, which I told you a little bit about, because I explain to people how debilitated I was, and I explain how exactly, step by step, I went through this process to heal myself. And once I'm done explaining all of that, I literally explain to people how to do it for themselves. And it's, you know, every one of my clients has read my book because everyone, as soon as I wrote it, was like, I want to read it. And um, for the most part, every not for the most part, every single one of them, including my friends who aren't even my clients, have said, when I read the book, I just feel like I'm sitting in the room talking to you. I'm very conversational. I drop the F-bomb every here and there, so just don't, you know, don't be afraid. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not I'm not. Who do you think you are, Adam Levine? What did you say? Who do you think you are, Adam Levine? Yeah, Adam Levine wishes he was me. Um <laughs> Just kidding. When I look at Adam Levine, you know who I see? I see my two sons. And I think, oh, he's just a little boy up there. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. I'm sorry. Um, sorry, Adam Levine. I know you're way famous and you're awesome. Um, but, you know, so for me, really, it's, 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 it's pe- I, I am passionate about people not being resigned. I'm passionate about people not being what I could have been, which is a little girl who was told at the age of 19 you never carry a baby to term. You shouldn't do all of these sports. You shouldn't do any sports. You shouldn't sleep unless you're on your side. You shouldn't go in long car rides because the bouncy car is going to hurt your back. And then I look at my life and how I ski and I rollerblade and I do everything with my kids and I'm teaching my five-year-old how to ride a bike bent over and I, I run and I do yoga and I can do anything. And it just I want to inspire people that, when you feel like you're stuck, it's not over. There's a different way to look at things. Oh. Yeah. Uh, you you loathe the title self-help, I read. Why? Because it's become so cliche. Because I feel like this is a self-help society where people see that word and are turned off. You know, and... um. I think my book, you know, like I, I probably wrote in the bio that you're reading, um, I haltingly call it a self-help book because it really is a self-help book. I mean, you know, if we're going to give it a title, um, that's what it is. But at the same time... Have you ever time, heard uh, George Carlin talk about self-help books? I haven't heard that specific thing, but my mother is a massive George, George Carlin fan. I've heard a lot of his stuff, and I'm sure whatever he says about it, about it, I would laugh my ass off because I make, I make fun of everything that probably is what I have to label myself because I can't take that stuff seriously. I mean, I, you know, no offense to Dr. Phil, but no, listen, offense to Dr. Phil. He started out as a therapist that probably was really good at his job, and then he got dollar signs in his eyes, 
and he has the stupidest show. And it used he used to have, I mean, I can't even bear to watch it anymore, but back when he was on Oprah a long, long, long time ago, he had real things to say. And he inspired me as a kid who was in, you know, grad school to be a therapist. I mean, he made people look at each other. He made people confront each other. And, you know, he was, you know, Dr. Phil, the real deal, whatever they called him. But now he's just like this stupid, cliche, boring guy who has, like, Jerry Springer topics on and, like, pretends he likes his wife at the end when they walk off holding hands. It's so transparent to me. That's why I loathe self-help, because I think that it's become this industry where people just want to make money. And he used to talk about getting real, if you remember, like, you right. the whole thing, get real. Mm-hmm. Well, read my, read my book. That's really getting real. Like, I, I, <laughs> my problem is I, just, I guess I have a problem with that kind of um, exploitation of what I believe mm-hmm. is a really, really good profession. Uh, you know, they can really help people. Gotcha. Uh, Carlin said there's, he, he was saying there's no such thing as self-help. I say you, you had enough motivation to walk to the store and buy the books, so you helped yourself. There you go. There's no such thing as right. self-help. That's help. The self-help right. books are help, not self-help. Go home. Um, right. I hear so you. That's what he said. Uh you are quoted as saying, uh, Nicole, when I was at my lowest, I was desperate as my life was wrought with unreal emotional and physical pain. Now I know that desperation leads to surrender. Within beautiful surrender, it's possible to find one's truth. This is where real and enduring change resides. What do you mean by that? Explain that quote a little bit to me. All right. Um, I feel as if most of us spend a lot of time in life being defensive. And um, I'm a big fan of defense mechanisms. I've studied them forever, and I know that they serve a purpose because the Mm -hmm. reason we have defense mechanisms is because we need to defend ourselves from something, you know, and just in case your listeners don't exactly know what I'm talking about, you know, like say, for example, um, when we um, are constantly, you know, denial, right? Denial is the favorite defense mechanism. You know, you just don't want to think about something. You say, "I I choose not to think about that. That's fine. I actually really, really respect that in people because I also believe that true readiness is everything. And if you aren't ready to look at something, you're not going to look at it properly. You're just going to run away. So denial does work for a period of time. But the reason I I say that, what you just read, which is that I believe that people really can't do something that's really hard unless they are incredibly low. You know, they have to be just completely surrendered. They have to say, and this is what happened to me with the Sarno stuff, which I write about in my book, which is that I didn't know what to do, and I was going to physical therapy three days a week, and I was, this is before I did the Sarno work, and I was um, having therapeutic massages, and I was taking medications, and it was a year of horrible chronic pain, and my kids at the time were um, one and three, um, and my third hadn't been born yet, And there was one day, and I write about this in my book, and I remember it as if it were 10 minutes ago, that my children were really misbehaving. Um, We were in a deli, and I was trying to pay, and they were taking stuff off the shelves. They weren't being sassy. They were just being one and three. They were laughing and running around, and I was alone with them, and I was trying to pay, and I was trying to wrench things out of their hands. They were taking gummy bears off the shelves. It was completely embarrassing. And also, like, just difficult, and I was probably, you know, it was probably 5 o'clock in the evening, and I was exhausted. And um, by the time I 
got to my car, which was only about 30 feet from after I paid at the deli, my back had seized up to such an extent that I couldn't put them in the car. And so I stood there, and it was an active parking lot, and the cars were going by, and it was every it was five in the evening, everyone's coming off of work and going to the shopping center, and they were so little that I couldn't even let go of their wrists because, you know, letting go of one of their wrists could mean they run right into traffic, and boom. I mean, it was yeah. immediate. And um, I stood there in that parking lot, and I could not let go of one of their wrists, and I could not reach for anything like my phone or my keys. And I just stood there, and I put my forehead on the passenger, I'm sorry, on the driver's side window of my car, and I cried. And I stood there, and my kids finally, like, they just stood there with me. Like, they got some sense of, like, it's just time to, you know, give up. Like, there was no way that anybody was going to go anywhere. And I just sobbed, and I was, it was a horrible moment for me. But I will tell you, it was also a beautiful moment for me because after a little while, I don't know how I did it, but somehow, you know, I guess the pain subsided a bit, which makes a lot of sense to me now. And I got them in the car, and I buckled them properly, and I drove them home and got them to bed. And I remember sitting on my bed and looking out the window and saying, this is it. You need to do something serious. This is not a joke anymore because, you know, mess with me, but don't mess with my kids. Like, I... I wouldn't have been able to take care of them in that moment, and I wasn't. And, you know, I, I say to myself that that was the beauty of surrender because I really realized in that moment that I'm not going to be able to carry on like this, and that's not okay with me because I'm just a much more resilient person than that. And that's when I decided to look more deeply into Dr. Sorrow's work and go see him physically, see him in the city, which was not easy because he was, you know, a three-time best-selling author. Um, he had his third book out by then, and it was extremely expensive, and I couldn't afford it. And one of the things I also write about in my book is I'm a very appreciative person. I did not grow up with money. I didn't grow up with privilege. And when my mother, who lives paycheck to paycheck, said to me, I'll pay for it, and it was I'm not going to mention on air, but it was quite a bit of money, I, um, <laughs> I said I, I would do anything. I, I went and I said I would do anything. And that's what I call surrender. What I call surrender is when our beautiful humanity is able to take shape because we stop defending ourselves and we stop making excuses for ourselves and we say, all right, it's go time. You know, I need to do something about whatever it is. And within surrender, you can find truth because desperation and surrender are places you cannot be for too long. You know, you, you you can't you have to move past it. You know, unless unless you're you know clinically depressed and you really are stuck, which of course I've seen people there too. Um, and so that's what actually inspired me to do something different and led me to find my own truths, which led me to help other people do so. That's a pretty amazing story. Um, and the, the epiphany. Um, yeah, I, I, that's that's pretty amazing that it came at that time when you felt that you couldn't be a protective parent in the moment, and and that you know that that's what dawned on you to to do something about it. Was it pretty immediate? Did you you immediately went home and researched? Yeah, it was literally that night. Like Ryan, you don't understand. Like I, like I said, which we talked about earlier, I've wanted to be a parent since I was ten, and yeah. I view my children as the greatest source of pride in my life. And I um, haven't always been a perfect parent. I write about that a lot in the book as well. And a lot of that had to do with my healing, 
to admit what what I was really feeling about parenting. But I will tell you that um, there's nothing in the world that would keep me from properly parenting my kids, and that was why that was my beautiful surrender because everyone's got their breaking point. And I have clients who come in my office every day and week after week, and they look at me, and they're almost embarrassed to walk through the door. And I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, same thing as last week. And they're almost embarrassed to be in the same place. And I always say to them, have patience and kindness for yourself because one of these days it's not going to be okay anymore, and then you're not going to take it anymore, and then we're going to make a change. But until people are ready, they can't force themselves because I've watched so many people try to force themselves, and they just go back. You know, it's like it's like this boyfriend. He's treating me badly. I can't stand him. He abuses me. He's like, but until you are ready to actually make the move to, you know, take that step and get away from that relationship, I'm not going to push someone to break up because they're just going to go back. I've seen it happen a million times. Um, mm-hmm. So that was my total, you know, uh, what I call deal, deal breaker. You know, it's like if I am going to be in a position where there's going to be a possibility that I am not going to be able to take care of these children properly and keep them safe, ask that. <laughs> I'm going to do something about it. So that's, that's how this all began. And have you, Nicole, have you faced the challenge of being a, a gay parent that you otherwise don't think you would have faced? Well, you know, that's an interesting question, and it's so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address that um, as per a conversation I had with my mother uh, yesterday, um, which is that she was laughing about how I always am able to hit things right before the tipping point so I don't have to suffer. <laughs> um mm-hmm. I, um, I, I, I was a very um, boy-crazy young girl, and I loved my boyfriends, and I, you know, got married um, after I, you know, completed grad school and did everything I wanted and loved my husband. And never, it never really, I was not a tortured gay person. It did not, and this is, I believe that there is such a spectrum of, of, of gay and straight, to be honest with you. But what ends up happening is when my marriage was really, um, not going well, and my ex-husband was very, very involved in his career and really never with us, um, meaning myself and the kids, and I had an opportunity to just do whatever I wanted because, you know, he wasn't there and I, was, I would be with my friends. And I just kind of slowly but surely realized I just really, really love to be in the company of women. They are warm and they are understanding and I love to be with my friends and it satisfies me more than being with my husband and I don't know what would have happened to me. I mean, some of my friends say, oh, Nicole, eventually you would have gone gay. And I say, okay, well, maybe I would have. But what ends up happening was by the time I was really ready to be divorced, um, my kids were six, four, and two. And one and a half. And, um, you know, we, we reached, a, you know, a conclusion of the divorce. And after my experiences being with my friends, and, you know, I, I had had, once I was separated, one relationship with a woman, I just said to myself, you know, it's a lot also about having lived through all this pain and all this adversity in my life and all this moving. And my father passed away. I, I was very young. I was 27. He died very tragically when I was 27. And I'm an only child. And I said to myself, you know what, life is too short. I love being with women, and I really did feel very connected to them. So when I fell in love with my current wife, 
um, Tiffany. It was so beautiful to me because it just, you know, it was meant to be. You know, I will tell you, my, my religion, my, my, my cultural religion is I'm Jewish. I was born Jewish, um, and I am Jewish. I believe in my culture, but I've never been um, a practicing Jew in terms of, like, you know, going to synagogue a lot. But I will tell you that I do have deep spirituality, and a lot of my spirituality has to do with what's meant to be. And um, when Tiffany and I got together, um, she has two children. I have three. And we really, um, from the moment that we got together, taught our children about loving all people and about um, not tolerance, because I don't like the word tolerance because that feels like you're tolerating people, just more like love for all people no matter what their their life is. And um, the beautiful thing about that is it has not been a challenge, but that's what I was saying about my mom, you know, laughing that I hit it. You know, gay, gay, being gay right now is not so hard. <laughs> I think 20 years ago, if I had been one of those gay people that was born, you know, gay and that, you know, 20 years ago when I was 20 years old, um, I think I probably would have had a really hard road. And many of my gay friends who knew they were gay since they were six, you know, they've had to really struggle. I can't even play that card because Tiffany and I met. We live in Rehoboth Beach, which is a extremely gay-friendly community. Our children are amazing. They have kids in all of their classes that have same-sex parents, at least one per class. And we, we teach them love and tolerance. I mean, my, my, my daughter just um, was at this pottery place, and she made this heart, and she painted it with a rainbow, and she wrote on it, um, you, you need to be the change that you wish to see in the world. And it's hanging in my kitchen. And she's 10. And, you know, I just, I feel like, um, I feel like it's a privilege to be a gay parent in 2013. I feel proud. Um, Tiffany and I were married um, in October of, oh, I don't know, of 2012. Um, and our children were all part of the ceremony, and our family and friends were there on the beach. It was beautiful. And I love the fact that I can give my children that gift of just, you know, and myself, of just being self-expressed and feeling like there's nothing different from us. You know, we're just, we're all the same in our hearts. So, I mean, like, as much as I would like, you know, just, like, cry over her, like, it, that is one thing that is actually a beautiful thing in my life because it's not a difficulty. So I'll let you know you're the first person I've ever heard say the term my current wife. Well, because um, I've never had a wife before. <laughs> I got it. I understand. <laughs> the, the, the sound of it is... Uh, you know, uh, well, I'm, I'm, not uh, well, playing, I can, I'm not playing to have a future wife. So, you know, all you ladies, step <laughs> off. Um, Nicole, I can relate to you on a, on a number of, of reasons and we almost have to go, but, um, uh, I'm, a also a big believer in, in that the, the body has the, the power to let go of pain itself without a lot of, uh, invasive stuff. And, um, when I lived in, uh, Los Angeles, I went to see a therapist there. Um, you're still with me, right, Nicole? You're oh, absolutely. Oh, I, I love that oh. you're talking and not me. Please. <laughs> um, and uh, she suggested that I, I – the reason I went to see her is because I am a big tennis player and I injured my knee and it sent me into this deep funk of depression that I couldn't play tennis. Mm-hmm. And it was like after a year of rehabilitating – another injury, so it was, like, doubly painful um, okay. emotionally. Uh, and 
she suggested that I uh, go do this craniosacral work out there. So I went to see a craniosacral therapist, and I'd say that's a, I went that's in. That's massage work, right, Ryan? Craniosacral yeah, it's like, work? It, yep. It's more light touch and energy than it is massage, but it's it's like it's almost like Reiki. Um, Got it. Got and it. Yeah, I, I went to see this guy in Beverly Hills, call him craniosacral Paul. And I'd say, I, and because it was it was a knee injury, I got all these other injuries, and, and it was uh, uh, like a, for these compensating injuries. So then I went in with tennis elbow in both elbows, and like at the end of the first session, I walked out of there, and it was like the tennis elbow was 75% gone. And it was just through this, you know, just him helping my body release the pain itself. Um, and then the kicker is when I really knew that there was something to this, uh, I was about to tell a boy that I had feelings for him. And it was my best friend that I had made in L.A., and I had never had this conversation with any other guys that I had feelings for before. Um, and But it just got to the point in my life where I had to do it. So um, that day I was at work. I worked for a PR firm at the time, and I was sitting in my uh, receptionist chair just agonizing over it and how would the conversation go and would it ruin our friendship, et cetera. But the last time I had seen this craniosacral Paul, I had asked him his advice on the matter. And he said that, you know, well, I've had friendships that I didn't want to say anything out of respect for the friendship. And I, you know, I've had it go either way, but whatever, uh, whatever you do is right or something. So then that day at my desk, I'm agonizing over it. My stomach's turning, my head is spinning. And then around 4.30 that day, Paul, the craniosacral guy, he calls me, and I'm like, well, what's, we don't have an appointment. What's he doing calling me? And he just leaves this message saying, hey, Ryan, just call to see what's going on, buddy. Give me a call back. And it was strange because he was essentially like a, a doctor to me, and he was calling just to see what right. was up. So on the way from my uh, job to uh, my friend Bryce's place in Santa Monica, uh, I called Paul back because that was back in the days when it wasn't illegal to talk on the phone in the car. And everyone's still on the phone in LA <laughs> right. anyway. Um, right. And I called him and I said, uh, it's really weird that you called today because you uh, remember the last thing that I asked you about. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I, I think I'm going to go tell him how I feel. And then Paul said, I was picking up on your energy all day. And I, I, after every one of my sessions, I was saying, I got to call that kid. And I said, that's so crazy. And he said, not really. It's just life. And he said, you know, I whatever you do is right. Life. I promise it'll be okay. And I, uh, I go over there and I, <laughs> I tell him. And but that call from Paul was was like the clear indicator to me that there was that he actually could pick up on my energy and have the power to to heal me through his work, which involved this light touch and this energy and stuff. And I had never been involved in any of that before but but that made it really evident that there was something to it and then I told my friend that I liked him and he was really shocked and uh stuff but he was really great about it and sensitive about it and I wound up and he was straight too he was straight let's not forget that <laughs> um I wound up being the best man at his wedding anyway so our, our friendship That's, remained you know intact That's he was really great cool. about it That's so cool so, that yeah. he was able to hear that and then like not you know, need to be uncomfortable about it because you were just able to be true with him, which I think is fabulous. I mean, did, did it help abate your pain to do that? 
Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what you were saying before about just coming to that moment where you you surrendered. You couldn't, <laughs> you didn't want to deal with that pain anymore, so you did something about it. So I didn't want to deal with, you know, having feelings for people and not doing anything about it anymore. So so this kid that I was in love with for like the last two years before that, I I just felt like I had to do something, and that was the only way. I mean, I think it's the only way we could have stayed friends too. Uh, you know, it, I may have looked at it like it was going to hurt our friendship, but in the end it, it made us stronger. But, yes, absolutely. Well, that's wonderful because, you know what, I think there's so many people that can benefit from hearing something like that because, you know, what I like to say all the time to people, especially people who come into my office and say, there's no way I can change my life, I can say to them, you don't really have to change your life. You don't really have to completely mess it up. First and foremost, you just need to say it to yourself because, Ryan, I'm sure long before you went over to your friend's house and told him that, you had to fight the battle of saying it out loud to yourself. Oh, my goodness, mm-hmm. I have feelings for this man. You know, like, that's not right or that's not okay or my society doesn't say it's okay or my parents, and I don't know anything about you, literally. But I guess what I'm saying is, for me, it was similar because when I realized that I really wanted to be with a woman, that was a really hard moment for me because every one of my friends eventually who I told was supportive, but I had to go through my own internalized homophobia that had been ingrained in me since I was very young. And it wasn't, I didn't have hateful parents. I wasn't, I was, I was brought up in, you know, in suburban New Jersey outside of New York city. It wasn't that it was more about that. So gay or, you know, Oh my God, yeah. you're a lesbian. Like, it, but it, I didn't. I never had hate in me. It was just kind of giggles and silly. And so, when I fell in love with a woman for the first time, I said to myself, "Oh my goodness!" And my first thing was, I don't want to be people's punchline. I don't want to be. You know, when I moved down here to move in with Tiffany and, and combine our families slowly, which we did, like really, you know, slowly for the kids and in a healthy fashion. I defriended, like, three-quarters of people on Facebook, and people started, like, calling me and being like, Nicole, what the hell? And I realized that by shutting people out, it made it seem like I was doing something wrong and bad. And so as soon as I was able to come to terms with myself and be proud of myself, now my Facebook page is literally public. Like, I don't even have any, like, I don't care who wants to look at the beautiful pictures of of Tiff and I and our family because, to me, I want to set an example. I want to rise above anything that people are feeling ashamed of because shame kills. Guilt kills. Guilt and shame, which is why I have a little bit of a problem with organized religion, um, kills people because they feel like they can't be self-expressed. And I just want people to be self-expressed because so much of our pain and our sadness is encompassed in the fact that we don't feel like we can be who we are. And um, mm-hmm. and that, that's so unnecessary at this point, you know, in life. Like, there's just, I feel like our world is, is ripe and ready for my book and for anything that's gay and anything that's trans and anything that's anything. Like, be who you are. And just live it and be proud because the people who are haters are going to be smaller and smaller and they'll end up being shunned because nobody wants to be hanging out with haters. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think that's a good – we've gone way over tonight, uh, but I, I think this was really fascinating, so thanks for sticking around. Um, 
the book, where can people buy the book, um, Nicole? Okay, well, um, it's called The Meaning of Truth, and um, mm-hmm. it's available on Amazon.com, and it's available on iTunes, and um, on Amazon you can get it on, like, paperback, and you can get it on Kindle. But um, if you go to my website, which is www.meaningoftruthbook.com, there's links to everywhere you can buy it. Oh, also, if you have a Nook, you can buy it on barnesandnoble.com. It's just available anywhere. And um, also, I love to say, please be in touch with me through my website because I am not yet, quote, unquote, as my kids say, are you famous yet? Um, I'm not famous mm-hmm. yet. So if you want to be in touch and tell me your impressions of the book, I will probably write you back. And so I, I welcome people's um, attention and impressions of it. Awesome. Well, Nicole Sachs, the book is called The Meaning of Truth. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the program tonight. Brian, it's been my pleasure. It's been lovely to talk to you. Have a great night. Lovely to talk to you. You too. too. Okay. Good night. All right. Bye. All right. That was Nicole Sachs. Big thank you to Nicole Sachs and Josie Marie for coming on tonight. Um, I uh, just want to remind everyone that we have a new show premiering this week. It's Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, uh, and it is called Blaze and Rye Backstage. Uh, and it'll be just a free format hootenanny that uh, frequent panelist Jonathan Weeks, who was on earlier tonight, and I uh, will 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 talk to each other. We'll welcome people, and quite frankly, we don't know what it's going to be yet. So you guys can kind of come along for the ride with us. All right, so I can think of no better way of ending the show than by saying, if it ain't showbiz, it ain't a biz. Also, hit the brakes, Florence, and if you have a Barbie doll, you want to bend her backwards, strip her off the cl- strip her of those clothes, uh, cut off her hair, I'm trying to think of what Tanika did, and burn her knuckles on the stove, and leave her in some drawers somewhere. Good night, everybody. We'll catch you Wednesday.